Welcome to GeoNail Voice, the podcast that hopes to enlighten, entertain, and connect you to the inside world of the gaming and hospitality industry. I'm sure we all remember the tragedy in Las Vegas, and it has brought the issue of guest and employee safety and security front and center. So in this episode of GNL Voice, we are going to speak with Robert Woolsey about the Active Shooter Preparedness Plan. But before we get talking with Robert, here's a little bit more about our guest. Robert is a regular contributor to GNL Magazine. He has spent the last two decades in public safety, working as a law enforcement administrator for the last eight years. As a certified law enforcement instructor, Robert has developed the continuity of operations, emergency services, and incident action plans for many major organizations throughout Nevada. Robert is a certified incident command instructor. He sits on the City of Las Vegas Emergency Preparedness Committee and developed the City of Las Vegas' active shooter response and de-escalation training program. Robert has a bachelor's and a master's degree in public administration and a doctorate in organizational leadership. Robert, welcome to GNL Voice. We're excited to talk to you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Good. Thanks. We're going to talk about active shooter preparedness. So if you could kind of tell us what that is and and uh, how that relates to the gaming and hospitality industry, that's probably a good place for us to start. Sure. So active shooter uh, is also known as active assailant. And when it really kind of came to uh, the attention of law enforcement and government was uh, back probably in the late 90s, uh, right around the time that Columbine had hit. Uh, In 1999, Columbine High School experienced what was at the time the largest uh, mass shooting on U.S. soil of any type. And what happened during that uh, particular event is the way law enforcement and government really focused on uh, preparing for an active shooter, an active assailant event, uh, changed dramatically. Uh, what we have noticed over the last few years is uh, while we have adapted uh, in many respects uh, in the way that we address these issues, uh, we've left some of the more uh, vulnerable areas behind. And so when I say more vulnerable, we look at active shooter scenarios or situations over the years. Uh, the areas we've seen that have been the most heavily targeted have been places like government facilities, Uh, churches or places of worship, uh, and schools. Those areas have all done a very good job of kind of hardening themselves and preparing themselves for what unfortunately has become the inevitable uh, in society of someone wanting to do kind of harmful things. What we have seen uh, quite a few, and and it's, it's on the rise, is active shooter situations and scenarios occurring within private business. Uh, Specifically, as we know here in the Las Vegas Valley, uh, after, after the October 1 shooting and what occurred there, uh, you know, and how it kind of rocked the gaming industry uh, and specifically MGM, uh, we realized that, you know, there was a large gap. Uh, we were mm-hmm. forcing, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, all of these scenarios to go away from those areas where traditionally they had been uh, frequented. Uh, by hardening those locations, and instead we push them towards private business, where people have realized that uh, while things such as uh, infrastructure and cybersecurity are important, sometimes physical security was not as. Uh, And so what we've seen over the years, uh, specifically in the last probably 20 years, is a real quick transition from public agencies and public locations doing a lot of training and and preparing themselves 
to actually extending that out into the private industry. And we've seen a, a large jump of that over the last few kind of years and, and specifically the last few months here, especially in Southern Nevada. Okay. On the, on the private industry, are they primarily looking at external forces or can it be internal, like employees too? So one of the things that we really look at to date is the influx of internal um, active assailant scenarios and situations that have occurred. Uh, within the last six months or so, we've had uh, at least two pretty high profile ones, one occurring in Illinois when an employee that was being fired actually went out to his vehicle, retrieved a weapon and came back in. And more recently, uh, we had the one in Virginia Beach uh, where we talk about uh, an employee that was in all, uh, for lack of a better term, in very good standing with the organization, but something caused him to come in that day and, and cause uh, this kind of situation to occur. Uh, we can prepare uh, pretty well for anything that comes in externally. Uh, we talk about upgrading security systems uh, and kind of hardening a location, whether it be including additional security cameras or means to detect metal objects, such as weapons coming into a building. Uh, we always kind of work through the equation of how to keep the outside uh, from coming in. But when we have people that we know are supposed to be there and we believe we vet those folks, uh, we do a pretty good job of doing a background on them and we believe that we trust them, uh, there is an expectation that those employees are not going to do harm. The unfortunate part is, is we're seeing uh, quite a shift in that because again, if you wanna do harm, you're not gonna go to a place where you know you will not have easy access. Uh, the MO or the, the modus operandi of an active shooter is simply to cause as much chaos and harm uh, to the uh, kind of easiest targets as possible. And when you know that you're going into a place that has all of these uh, very obvious uh, ways to stop you from causing the chaos you want to occur, uh, it's very easy to shift to a location that's much softer for you, i.e., if you're an employee, you're not being scanned like the general public would be, or you're not subject to those rules, then yes, it makes it a lot easier. And unfortunately, it's a scarier preface or you know premise to look at, hey, uh, some of our internal employees are the ones that are causing this chaos. Is it increasing that it's becoming the internal, that the employees are causing more trouble than the external forces? Or what's on the rise? What some of the, the data we've seen, um, the FBI keeps statistics on this, so we keep pretty close eyes here uh, from a, kind of a public safety perspective. What we've noticed is um, almost every one of our active shooters as of late has a very distinctive, uh, almost uh, familiarity with the organization or locations where they've uh, caused their active shooter. Uh, for example, uh, we go back as far as things like the Pulse nightclub, uh, not only did the shooter have access to the location, he knew the people there, the people knew him well. Uh, and then we move forward to, as I said, uh, we've had shootings in a lot of um, organizations where um, employees essentially uh, have been allowed, whether organizations have looked the other way or have not really stressed the importance of not having weapons on their facility. Uh, but we've noticed or organizations that allow for um, kind of concealed carry on their employees. Don't ask if their employees have it. Uh, I've had really kind of horror stories of locations that luckily nothing bad has occurred, uh, but they were concerned about an employee and knew that that employee actually was carrying a weapon on them. Uh, and when I asked how they knew this or what they were doing to try and change that, uh, their mentality from their senior management folks were, well, you, you know, if you know he's a problem, kind of leave him alone. 
uh, well, that causes angst and anxiety within an organization. Mm -hmm. And when we start to look at the numbers and how many internal employees or internal stakeholders uh, to organizations are really kind of the root cause of these latest active shooter events, it, it causes quite a bit of concern. What, what Do you have any stats to share? Uh, I do. When we look at, um, let's kind of take a look at businesses. Uh, what we found is uh, in most businesses, at least one out of every four employees will be victimized uh, by some form of violence within the organization at some point in their career. Uh, when you kind of break that out, uh, there's about 18,000 workplace assaults uh, that are logged each week in the United States. Um, and the unfortunate part is, is that really kind of comes down to uh, preparedness and what the organization is doing, as well as how that's going to impact the overall uh, impact or uh, uh, kind of uh, the bottom line for an organization. You know, 70% of all businesses say that either they don't have uh, an active assailant uh, protocol or plan in place, uh, or it's under adequate for what they believe that they need. Uh, what I've seen, uh, especially in, in some of our tech businesses, is what they've noticed is they're growing at a faster rate than their companies can keep up with. Uh, same thing can be said about some of our casino industries here. Uh, we work with a lot of uh, Society for Human Resource folks who do a lot of training and on-site work with uh, our expanding casino platform here in Southern Nevada. And so what they're saying is they're growing at a pace that really outpaces what their human resource and risk management folks can keep up with. The result of that is, is, you know, if any major event were to occur, uh, you know, companies are, are, are reporting uh, back to the U.S. government that, hey, look, these events are costing us upwards of $121 billion a year in lost revenue and downtime uh, for an organization that is not prepared. So, I mean, as you can see, it's, it's, it's a very broad uh, issue. And it's, it's not just a matter of, uh, life or death, because, you know, we teach all hazards approach to things and it may not just be an active assailant. It could be an earthquake mm -hmm. uh, or a fire. Uh, but if a business is unprepared to deal with something uh, as serious as one of these major life changing events, uh, it really could impact their business, either uh, losing quite a bit of money, losing employees, uh, people losing their lives, or that business may never open up again as a result of this. And so, uh, you know, it, it's statistically alarming, uh, especially in 2019, to see how many businesses are unprepared for these events. What are the laws around this issue and, and what can companies do and what can they or what are they not not allowed to do? So there's kind of a really interesting shift that we've seen. OSHA has always been uh, very proactive um, in letting organizations and businesses know uh, what they should and should not do in order to keep their employees safe. Uh, when I talk to a lot of businesses locally, uh, they say, well, OSHA is not really as big a deal for us because we're not in a field or we don't handle uh, certain things that are required under OSHA's uh, kind of oversight. And I have to remind them that uh, a couple years ago, OSHA actually came out with um, an addendum to their general duty clause. Uh, and under the general duty clause, it, it says specifically that if a business understands that there is a danger or a hazard that their employees might face, uh, and there is some way to prevent or uh, provide a way to avoid those issues from impacting their employees in a negative way, they are required by federal law to provide training or uh, kind of a plan in order to uh, stop that from occurring. Uh, 
The issue is, is for many, many years, uh, folks thought, well, that's as simple as a fire drill. Uh, or, hey, making sure that uh, my employees know where to go if there's an earthquake. Nobody really thought about the active shooter thing because what OSHA is saying in the past is if you can prepare for it, you can plan for it, you can prevent it. Uh, what a lot of businesses have said is, you know, it's almost impossible to prepare for or prevent an active shooter event. And while I kind of agree to a certain extent, I mean, we obviously understand that you can't stop every one of these things from occurring. And unfortunately, if one does occur in your location, uh, the odds of people being injured and or killed are there. I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a known fact that's really kind of hard to ignore. The problem is, is if you know that there's training uh, or there are opportunities to develop a plan that is comprehensive and can address the issues that OSHA is discussing, specifically, you know that training exists, you know that there's opportunity to prepare your folks, and you choose not to do it. Uh, there's actually a case law that came out uh, a few years ago, and I want to say about four or five years ago, where the Ninth Circuit Court said yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, if your organization knew that there was training and you got injured inside an active shooter event, and you did not, or you felt you were not prepared, or your organization did not prepare you for how to respond, not to how to stop it, or how to uh, get around it or avoid it, but simply how to respond in one of those events, and your organization chose to not do that, you can be sued as an organization for failing to provide training to your employees. That is a big shift. Wow, uh, And yes. that's something that a lot of employers were not prepared for. Additionally, what a, a lot of businesses say is, well, I have a very small business, um, but OSHA is also very good about that. They've changed the law to say that if your business has at least 10 employees, you're liable for making sure that those employees have got a written plan in place that addresses any hazards that could possibly uh, impact them, impact your business, uh, and could cause harm for anybody that comes and goes from your organization. So those are very big things for businesses to understand and recognize. And unfortunately, uh, for many years, uh, nobody's really kind of paid attention to that. The other side note, if I can say, that's really difficult is uh, a lot of what the federal government pushes out to organizations under labor laws uh, and under kind of risk uh, mitigation laws uh, are typically unfunded mandates. And so while we look at large corporations uh, like the gaming uh, sector where um, they live and die by the numbers, but are making, uh, as we've seen, even through some of the hardest times, uh, pretty good revenue on the back end, uh, you have a lot of smaller agencies, a lot of smaller businesses that cannot afford to do this. And so while we understand um, kind of where they're coming from, it really is important that they understand that at the very end of the day, failing to do this could potentially destroy their business in the long run. Yes. Now, you talked about OSHA and some of the federal um, mandates out there. Are there any state-based laws or locality? Like, does Las Vegas have specific rules and that, that the casinos have to follow? So unfortunately, they do not. Um, and that's one of those things that uh, we found kind of from a, a uh, unprepared perspective uh, following the event of October 1st was um, a lot of businesses understood what their uh, responsibility was to their employees through employment labor law uh, and through kind of what the federal government was pushing down to them. Unfortunately, the state uh, of Nevada, their Office of Emergency Management kind of oversees a lot of the training and a lot of the specific requirements. The issue we've run into is a lot of that is focused uh, very specifically, including grant funding and money to develop these programs, 
uh, to date have been focused uh, very much on public agencies. And so while we, uh, you know, from the public's perspective uh, in government, we're looking at, uh, hey, there's uh, things that we need to do uh, and there's funding available and there's support available at the state level. Uh, what was happening was, as I said, a lot of smaller organizations uh, that did not have the funding were unable to get any of that funding. Uh, I know that in this last legislative session, uh, there were bills that were introduced to try and address some of those issues to provide uh, some more public money to private industries and private locations to increase uh, their ability to prepare for. Uh, the unfortunate part is, is we also have things like school districts and we have uh, areas that are very much uh, susceptible to these events and to these incidents. And so that's where a lot of the money goes. We look at the city of Las Vegas, uh, while no specifically they do not have laws in place similar to what building laws would be uh, or, you know, kind of code enforcement stuff. Uh, they really have done a very good job of opening up uh, training opportunities and opportunities to work with uh, private business in developing things like their continuity of operations planning, uh, their business continuity planning, uh, their emergency uh, occupancy plans, all of which those things are hey, how do you address uh, the worst case scenario before that day comes? Uh, how do we provide our public resources and our folks that have uh, trained and are very strong in areas like emergency management? How do we get them out there to work with our private partners to make sure that we provide this uh, in-house training on how to respond to active shooter free of charge for them, but also help them to develop uh, their long-term uh, resiliency plans uh, and to develop you know, kind of best practices to avoid and or uh, prepare for these things. So the city's been very good about focusing on that. I know the county here uh, has done a very good job as well uh, to try and bridge that gap. But like I said, there's still probably more that needs to be done, unfortunately. Do you think the progress the city and county have made, has made, um, is a result of the October shooting? Uh, in many respects, yes, I, I do believe so. Um, the sad part about it is, is, um, We've been training on the, the, the public safety side, meaning you know police fire side and government side for uh, an event like that for many, many years. And when I say many years, um, right around uh, 2015, we kind of knuckled down uh, with our partners um, around the valley and said, we need to do a lot more uh, cross-jurisdictional uh, training. And a lot of what we trained in were things like uh, shopping centers and malls, uh, very enclosed areas. Uh, we've always looked at our public um, outside uh, kind of amphitheater type areas and areas where we hold uh, large outdoor uh, venue kind of events as um, knowing that there's always a potential. But uh, we thought we were doing a very good job. The unfortunate part is there was no other data and there's no other way to prepare for what we had gone through. Um, the result of that is, is uh, companies like Live Nation uh, have come in. Uh, those are some of the groups that put on things like Life is Beautiful uh, and the Route 91 conference in conjunction with their um, gaming partners like Boyd Gaming and Caesars Entertainment and MGM. Uh, and what they've done is they've come to us and said, look, uh, we've realized now our worst fear being October 1, how can we prepare for this going forward to make sure this does not occur again? And so, unfortunately, while we've had to shift gears, um, we've done it, and I shouldn't say fortunately, I guess it's, it's a good thing. We've had to shift gears from how we thought we were going to need to train 
into what the real world has turned into. And uh, I guess a good part about that is we've been able to kind of loop in our private business partners as well uh, in order to make sure that they're training the same way we are. Uh, and whether that be, you know, down here on Fremont Street in the downtown quarter, working with Fremont Street Security uh, and some of the, the Boyd Gaming and, and those partners down there to train their security staff on what to do and how to respond and how to react, uh, working with our partners on the strip uh, with MGM and, and Caesars to include things like shot spotter technology uh, so we can identify within, uh, you know, split kind of where the uh, shooter may be uh, and where some of our danger spots are and how we can respond appropriately and how to train staff on those casino levels to identify things on their uh, internal cameras and systems. Uh, yes, a lot of it has been as a result of, uh, and like I said, you know, those are always kind of those silver lining things you look for when it, something bad happens. But uh, at the very least, it, it's helped us prepare, hopefully, uh, to, you know, confront one of these issues in the future. Mm -hmm. So the active shooter preparedness plan, what, what exactly is it and what, um, what are its components? What makes a good plan? And how do you how do you get started in in getting one for your organization? So it's really important at the very core of every one of these plans that an organization has some kind of policies or procedures in place. Um, the, the, the kind of national framework for active shooter preparedness and how to respond uh, it kind of revolves around the run hide fight. Uh, another version of it is avoid, deny, defend, but it's all the same basic um, kind of plan in place. And so what it really comes down to is it starts off with something as simple as uh, when you have your employees come in to your organization, uh, make sure that you have a plan in place on how to deal with uh, all hazards. And I say all hazards because I really think it's important. While active assailants are, are uh, the most dangerous uh, event that we possibly can deal with. And we say that simply because um, while mother nature is, is unwielding at times and unpredictable, uh, the human brain uh, we've seen can go into some really dark places. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, you go up against uh, someone that can pre-plan and prepare for the worst case scenario, which really, uh, it's a bad day for all of us um, when we confront one of those issues. So being able to deal with not only that, but deal with any hazard you're going to come in contact with is really important. Being able to discuss those issues openly with your staff. I think that's really important as well. Uh, any, you know, proactive plan talks about, look, these are the worst case scenarios uh, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, identify with your organization in your plan uh, where your evacuation routes are going to be. Uh, that's part of the run, part of the run, hide, fight. Know how you're going to get out of the organization. Know where you're going to go when you're out. Make sure that you can account for your employees. You know, we talk about the hide or, you know, the shelter in place portion of that. Uh, know if you have places in your organization where uh, you're more susceptible uh, to being found if something would occur. Find places in your organization that are safer. Uh, talk to your employees about how to harden up their areas they do hide somewhere. Uh, and make sure you go through that with your employees of what areas in the building potentially you have identified as being kind of your safe rooms or safe havens in the event of uh, an assailant coming in. And then obviously the fighting thing, I think that that's an important piece. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the running and, and hiding and, and a lot of people can only go to the level of their physical ability. And when I say that, uh, it may be impossible for someone on the 15th floor of a building uh, who is physically handicapped 
to be able to get down flights of stairs if there is an emergency going on in the building. And so you have to go into a different mindset of the sheltering in place or hiding uh, or potentially the fighting. And I think uh, it's important we not shy away from that. I mean, I know organizations are, are uh, skittish about coming forward and saying, you know, I want my employees to fight an active shooter, but that's part of the process. And that's part of what the emergency plan should be is to talk about all of the scenarios you may come in contact with and what all of your possible outcomes could be and how to handle those things. Uh, what we'd like to do with a lot of our plans when we help companies build them is, you know, use it as a starting point for conversations. Talk amongst your work groups uh, based on the the information we gave you to determine how that's going to impact your specific area uh, within your organization. You know, if you're in finance or you're an, uh, you know, an accountant uh, and you're working with that group, it may be different than what a slot person on the floor may have to do in, the, in one of those active shooter situations. And so use that to talk with your group and develop a plan that you think would work best for all of you. Uh, and then go back and constantly readjust and reevaluate your plan to make sure it works. Uh, we are very strong uh, stressors on the fact that, hey, any plan is, is uh, a plan is no good unless you actually practice it. And so we're constantly retooling and constantly going through and drilling those plans. And like I said, what I've, I've noticed post-October 1, uh, a lot of our gaming partners have done that. Uh, they've hired on uh, much more robust uh, kind of security staff. They've put uh, more robust security measures in place, and they're constantly training those groups uh, in order to respond to and react to what they've now put in place as a much stronger uh, emergency response plan when dealing with these. Uh, and so those are kind of the real core. Uh, identify, develop, and then test your plan. Those are really kind of the things that um, most organizations need to do. And it doesn't have to be very difficult. It just needs to identify kind of what they feel uh, are their core functions, how, uh, you know, uh, an active assailant could impact those and then how they would handle it and deal with it. And then, like I said, practice it. Mm -hmm. You've, you mentioned, you know, the fight or, or flight. Do most organizations, organizations want their employees to kind of you know, hide and keep themselves safe, safe, or do they kind of say, you know what, if you can fight back, fight back? You know, that's something that we've really had to change. Uh, our culture says, um, like I said, from a risk management perspective, especially in private industry, um, the, 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 the main thought is, look, get away if you can, or if you can't hide. Um, we were teaching, you know, a little bit off topic, we were teaching a, a, a private school here in Southern Nevada and um, they wanted to go through it and they realized uh, that they needed to update their plan. Uh, and so their, their principal called us in and we talked about it and they said, this all sounds really good, but I need you to make sure you stress what we have in our current policy and procedures. And I said, that's absolutely fine. What is that? And they said that by all means, uh, their employees should shelter in place. And that's what they had been teaching for many, many years. Uh, and it's a, it, it's a legitimate, uh, response to um, an active shooter threat, but it may not be the best or only response. And so when I kind of brainstormed with them a little bit, and I said, you know, I, I get where you're coming from, but in good conscience, we can't just teach that. And when the question came up as to why, the, the short answer was, well, what if you're not in a place to shelter? Uh, what if you're in the restroom and you happen to walk out and walk directly in front of a shooter? Uh, that's not the time to decide to run back into the restroom and hide. And so we really mm -hmm. had to uh, have those somewhat uncomfortable talks uh, with groups and explain to them that, 
your employees may not have a choice. Uh, and again, from a risk management uh, perspective, if you're only training your employees to do a specific thing, and something were to happen to your employee as a result of you telling them to only shelter in place or only to run uh, and not to defend themselves if they come down to that, uh, then, yeah, they put themselves in a very kind of precarious position of if someone were to get hurt, you know, could you be sued then? Uh, could your actions of telling them what to do uh, under fear of kind of what uh, uh, an unflexible policy be? Uh, make them maybe question not doing more to protect themselves for fear of maybe getting in trouble. And so, yes, we've had to have those conversations with a lot of groups. Uh, you know, it's, it's okay. We're not advocating violence. Uh, we're not advocating that people fight, uh, but we are advocating that people uh, understand what their options are, uh, understand what their personal physical limitations are, and then obviously do anything they can uh, to make sure that they maintain their personal safety and the safety of those around them the way you're going, it sounds very situational. Like, you know, you, you don't know what the answer is until something happens. And then you have to make that judgment call. Um, like walking out of the bathroom in front of, of the shooter, you have to make a, a judgment call right there. Um, you can't plan for all of those, um, occurrences. That's exactly right. We, we look at training, um, as one of two things. And we explain this to every group that we talk to about this topic. Uh, when you're, you're faced in this situation, uh, there's two ways that you or your employees can feel. Uh, it's either a trained response or an untrained response, which sounds simple. When we look at the trained or untrained response, uh, a lot of the characteristics are the same moving forward, meaning, uh, you know, simply the uh, untrained response person and the trained response person, when they are confronted with a shooter, are going to be nervous. Anxiety is going to set in. Uh, and then they're going to kind of go through a series of different events similar to, uh, you know, I don't believe this is happening, uh, denial, all those sort of things for the untrained response. We talk about the trained response. Well, yes, you're going to be upset and concerned and, and you know, um, disoriented momentarily. Uh, the hope of training your employees is when it, the, the moment hits, when it's time for them to make a reactionary uh, they're just supposed to react to what's going on. We hope that the trained response kicks in to say, okay, I can't believe this is happening, but it is. And I know what I have to do. And this is what I'm going to do immediately. And so by training your employees early on in the process and going through the process with them of what the policy states and what their options are. Uh, and like I said, we start those conversations early enough Hopefully, by the time they are ever confronted with one of these scenarios or situations, they've already made up in their mind and justified to themselves, this is what I need to do. And so whatever the scenario is, this is what I'm going to do, and they're committed to doing it. And the time to figure out what you're going to do or how you're going to commit to it is hopefully not the time that you're face-to-face -face with somebody because that's too late <laughs> at that point. And so, yes, I agree 100% with a situational thing, because again, if I have the opportunity to get away from a shooter, I'm not going to run directly towards them. That seems ridiculous to me. But in the same respect, uh, if you don't have that option, well then yeah, I'm absolutely going to fight my way out of there and do the best I can because, you know, I have a family and friends and a life that are really more important than whatever that shooter's determination mm -hmm. is for that particular moment. So how is, how is local law enforcement involved with creating these plans or are they, are they, very solitary corporate things. 
Unfortunately, uh, they are not. <laughs> and I say that uh, simply because, um, you know, government is still um, very much uh, siloed um, in kind of how they do things. We've gotten better. Uh, like I said, here in Southern Nevada, we've done a very good job of really trying to um, be more open and work uh, closer with our private industry partners. The problem is, is uh, we all have limited resources on the governmental side. And so uh, while we can do certain things, there is funding available for us to go out into the communities uh, and assist. Uh, you know, in particular, um, my organization has gone out to a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations that do not have a lot of money. Uh, and we worked with them to develop their plans, things like Catholic Charities. Um, um, the Water District actually was a big one for us. Uh, where they asked us to come out. And the bottom line is they, you know, we recognize that we put a lot of money, training, and effort into it at the taxpayer's expense, and so we need to give back. The unfortunate part is is uh, it's hard for us to uh, devote a lot of time and effort to doing that for every organization simply because it becomes uh, a drain on public resources uh, and a drain on kind of us doing our primary role. So that said, while we do do our best to try and work with the best we can, unfortunately, there's really nothing uh, out there that provides for it as an ongoing or sustainable process. Uh, a lot of companies have reached out to organizations like mine uh, where we do a lot of consulting work. Uh, I was speaking earlier with a public agency about work that we were doing, and I got a call immediately from a private business that said, hey, uh, we were referred your name. There's nobody out there that does this. Can you guys help us? Uh, and we, we do our best to help them under the, the constraints of what we can. Uh, I like to think that we're reasonable uh, when we work with them. But uh, we, we found the need because somebody has to fill the void, unfortunately. And there's no other resources out there uh, to do that for private industry. Um, it's, 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 I'll be honest. I say this all the time. It really does surprise me. And it's shocking that there isn't more resources, there aren't more resources, excuse me, out there for private businesses to tap into. Um, but again, it, it, maybe I live kind of in a bubble of, you know, my, my past, you know, two decades of public agency work uh, and the assumption that it's always going to be there or, or people are doing this. Apparently it's not happening uh, and nobody's really stepping up to assist, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So we've talked a lot or we've heard a lot about the human um, aspect of, of the plans and, the and, the, the resources. What about technology? What kind of technology is there for, um, these plans and for companies to use? And is it evolving? It, it absolutely is. I mean, I've seen in the last, uh, probably year and a half, about a half a dozen, uh, security related conferences come to town. Uh, and they run the gamut. They go from, um, you know, with campus uh, safety, uh, whether it be uh, for universities, uh, schools, districts, those sort of things. Uh, we have one that comes to town that's really pretty big here. Um, it's um, ISC uh, West, which is the International mm -hmm, Security I've them. Mm -hmm. uh, Council. Uh, and so these groups come to town, and I've seen a, a shift in quite a few things. Number one, the level and uh, the specific technologies they're bringing out now. Uh, they've really narrowed down kind of what the focus is and what they know the, 
the businesses need to protect themselves and their organizations, but also in kind of the training and stuff that goes on at those uh, events uh, is very much tailored to uh, not only um, how to prepare for and do a lot of kind of what we're talking about, um, but also uh, how to tailor your electronic equipment to assist you in preparing and, and, and you know, helping your staff to, to avoid these events. Uh, we've seen quite a bit of a shift in technologies from things like magnetometers. And so a magnetometer is kind of the walkthrough thing. You walk through at the airport uh, or you go into a courthouse. We've seen them now where they're much smaller. Um, we typically can identify areas on the body where you would uh, find a weapon. And while it may not be 100%, uh, we've been able to modify magnetometers to look like other things. Uh, turnstiles that do not have the turnstile as they walk through can identify if there's metal uh, out of the ordinary and that would uh, make us understand or believe that there is a weapon on the person. Uh, things like... Oh, so they they don't know they're walking through a metal detector and, and they and are. So, so that's, there's, that's there's that's things like that. I mean, okay. uh, we have ways for when women walk through carrying a purse, the purse gets picked up on things. I talked a little bit earlier about things like shot spotter, uh, where it's, it's simply uh, microphones that are placed around um, in certain areas. Uh, we either have ones that are fixed. So on say, the Las Vegas Strip on the boulevard, we've got ones that are fixed posts uh, that will be able to triangulate similar to how you find a cell phone signal uh, down on the strip area. And it can give us within, uh, you know, a, a five foot radius of where a shooter would be. Um, so there's a lot of technology that's coming out now that is aimed at being able to assist. And uh, one of the things I think is really kind of interesting, and we see a lot of our larger uh, gaming and hospitality groups utilizing this now, uh, is facial recognition software. Um, we're able to, to actually go back and see how, um, you know, they've used it for, uh, you know, purposes to identify, hey, uh, this is a person that should or should not be in the location because maybe we've um, trespassed them from our location. Uh, we've been able to actually utilize that and do tests on the public side of the house to say, hey, if we run this against our, our list of known uh, or dangerous people. Can we figure out uh, who those people are and where they are? Um, you know, airports utilize that technology now and Homeland Security utilizes it. And while it's not full blown or full scale or completely rolled out yet, uh, there are very interesting, uh, you know, programs and interesting products out there that are aimed at trying to um, address some of these incidents and allow law enforcement and security personnel in businesses to um, kind of respond and react quicker to when an event occurs to mitigate the loss of life. Okay. So Robert, as we, before we wrap up, what would be the three things that you'd want our listeners to, to take away from our discussion here? You know, I think it's really important um, that people take this pretty seriously. I, I can't tell you the amount of large organizations, uh, and when I say large, we're talking thousands of employees, that when um, I speak with them about kind of some of these incidents and events uh, and ask them how prepared they are, uh, that they tell me, well, it's not really on their radar or it's really not that important, that it happens somewhere else. I, I think the primary thing that every listener that listens to this needs to do is really kind of take this seriously and take it to heart. 
this isn't some other community or some other person's problem. Uh, it's every community's problem. And we've noticed uh, it runs the gamut, whether it be uh, a movie theater uh, or, uh, you know, a, a shopping center. We've had them in, in supermarkets uh, and in outdoor concerts. So it really kind of, there's no set standard for where these events will occur. And it's important that everyone starts taking this very seriously and starts implementing these plans in place. Two, it's important that they have these very kind of candid, serious conversations with their employees about what they can and cannot uh, potentially run into and some of the dangers that are out there. Uh, we talk a lot about, you know, kind of um, how we do fire drills, but we never really talk about how to handle something like an active shooter. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of times where we've had these conversations again uh, in organizations, uh, even if they have plans, are not really processing them across to their staff or, like I said earlier, are making policies or decisions for their staff that may not be in their best interest because they don't want to scare staff or they're afraid how it's going to impact them on a risk management and insurance side. And third, I think it's important that we understand uh, that this doesn't just extend to their organization. Uh, you know, every business runs on human capital. And I think at the end of the day, even though sometimes companies forget that, human capital is really the number one um, uh, commodity that they have. Without people and without people having good well-being and mental health, uh, you know, it's going to impact your bottom line in your business. And so uh, we really think it's important that once uh, you develop these plans and kind of push them through to your staff, that you also work with your staff to really kind of understand and embrace uh, kind of bringing these plans home and developing at-home plans for themselves and their families. Uh, you know, the worst case scenario is, and we talk about this all the time, um, when hurricanes hit down in, in the southeast part of the country, police and fire personnel were expected to show up to work to help other people. But people seem to forget that those police and firemen were leaving homes with families that were experiencing the exact same terrifying situations everybody else was. And luckily, uh, a lot of them had plans in place because they had developed plans that were hybrids of what they were expecting to do at work. So their families were comfortable and safe and knew what they were to do. And so they made sure that they extended that to home. The other part is, is God forbid one of these events actually does occur at your organization uh, or to people that people may know, uh, but make sure that you're providing them with mental health assistance as well. Um, you know, after October 1, um, you know, MGM put a lot of time and effort into making sure that employee assistance programs, counselors, uh, and the like were all in place to make sure that their staff had people to talk to. Uh, because again, while it may be just fine to survive an event like that, uh, the long-term effects that may impact and kind of the, the mental health blow to a lot of your staff is an ongoing thing that you need to make sure you take uh, pretty good care of. So I think it's important that employers understand, uh, number one, uh, you know, you need to have something in place. Number two, it's important to have these very tough conversations with your staff and make sure that you have reasonable expectations of them and policies that they can follow that will keep them safe. And number three, at the end of the day, make sure that you're looking out for your employees' health and wellness, uh, because again, they're your, your, your best commodity in your business. I learned a lot, Robert, and I thank you for your time. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you to ask about their planning or have questions about what the next steps are, how would they reach you? Uh, so they can send me an email. Uh, it's uh, info, I-N-F-O, at silverstateconsulting, uh, one word, dot 
net, uh, or they can give me a call. Uh, phone number for our organization is uh, 1-800-830-6181. Um, if they call that, uh, someone will get in contact with them and they'll forward the information over to me. And I'm always happy to answer questions. Uh, I said a long time ago uh, when I started kind of the consulting side of, of you know, the business here, uh, it's very important that we get this information out. Uh, I don't want to be the guy after, again, two decades in law enforcement who uh, knows that we can get information out to people to keep them safe. And we kind of hoard that information and not get it to them. So uh, by all means, if, if the listeners want to give a call, if they have specific questions, uh, if they're looking to have someone put eyes on their plans or help them develop them, by all means, give me a call and, and either myself or uh, I've got about a half a dozen people that I work with. Uh, one of us will be more than happy to sit down and chat with them and, and make sure that they get all squared away. Okay. So we've been talking with Robert Woolsey about uh, active shooter preparedness and what what the planning for that is and what your organization should be doing for its employees and, and uh, customers. And uh, so, Robert, I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have. So I want to thank you for your time. And uh, I hope we can chat again soon, probably about some other topics, but uh, we'd love to, to have you back. Sounds great, John. I appreciate your time and I appreciate everybody listening.